What counts as Christian fellowship? A group Bible study or praying with someone? Is it considered fellowship if we're simply eating or spending time with other believers? These are important questions. As David Platt explains in today's sermon, Scripture makes fellowship among God's people a top priority. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt, delivered weekly. And as always, you can find thousands of more free resources over at Radical.net. Well, in today's sermon, based on Romans chapter 12, we'll see how God's mercy in the gospel serves as the grounds for fellowship in the church. As a family of faith, the church should come together for the glory of God and for the good of one another. Here's David Platt continuing the 12 traits of a biblical church series with fellowship from Romans chapter 12. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Romans chapter 12 in the New Testament right after the picture of the early church that we have in the book of Acts. Very next book, Romans chapter 12, while you're turning there, I want to welcome those of you who are gathering with us in Montgomery County and Loudoun and Prince William and in the main, there at the wharf, and on Main, there at the wharf, and then assisted living centers, microsites, good to be together across Washington, around the world, particularly on this Memorial Day weekend. So we praise God today for his grace in men and women who have lost their lives defending the freedoms we enjoy Praise God for his grace and pray for more grace in families, even as a part of our church family who have lost loved ones in defending those freedoms, and not just defending those freedoms, promoting those freedoms around the world. Uh, Whenever I travel internationally, I'm uh, constantly reminded of the grace God has provided to us. Uh, even this last week. So I just got back from Thailand where amongst other things, Dale, our lead pastor, and I were exploring partnerships with some slavery trafficking ministries there. It was nothing short of heartbreaking and gut-wrenching to learn about how that system works, to hear stories of victims in it, uh, to meet people who've been brought out of it, women, men, uh, little kids, stories of horrible things that happen behind the scenes that I can't even share in a setting like this, just working to see the peace and love and hope and grace of Christ in those areas. And then uh, we were in the Philippines among the ultra poor. So when you hear that term, Desperate or extreme poverty would include those who in the world live on less than about a dollar a day. So uh, that's a little over a billion people. Then the ultra poor would be among that group, people who live on 25 to 50 cents a day. So quarter to a couple of quarters a day for food, shelter, clothing, medicine, which there's really not much of. It's always humbling, life-altering, perspective-giving to be in the homes of the ultra-poor. Picture a tiny room with a dirt floor, 
where a family of four crams in to sleep, eat whatever little amount of food they have, no sanitation system, sort of walk through these slums or to, uh, to be in these rural areas with little to no resources. And yet to see the church there and to meet pastors in these villages. So I want to introduce you to a few pastors that I met um, over the last week. Pastor Eduardo, this brother is a farmer, has eight kids, uh, just got a certificate of pastoral training that McLean Bible Church has helped to provide through our giving. So Pastor Eduardo pastors a church of about 25 people. He... Uh, He's in a very rural area. He walks 10 miles one way to meet with the church where he pastors on a Sunday and then comes back. And that walk in the middle of insurgents, bandits everywhere, but he is faithfully loving and shepherding that people. And then Pastor Joel, so Pastor Joel was one of those insurgents, uh, came to Christ, then told his insurgent commander that he wanted to go to Bible school. Uh, that was the first time that commander had ever heard that particular request. And uh, he said, all right, you can go. So he did. Pastor Joel became a tribal missionary in this animistic tribe where there was no church, no Christians. He goes in this tribe. He meets the tribal leader and his wife. The tribal leader's wife is on the bottom right of this picture. Uh, leads the tribal leader and his wife to Christ. And they become the first members of the church there in that village. And now that church is established where there was no church before. And Pastor Joel faithfully shepherds them. And then Pastor Elias, pioneering pastor, married with seven kids. Uh, his aim, he stood up, was just sharing, I just want to reach the poorest of the poor in the mountains around me. He said, most Christians won't, won't go with me into these areas. They're afraid. And... He said, I don't understand why. Like, do we want these poor people to go to heaven or not? And he said, we're, we're called not just to believe, but to suffer for the spread of the gospel. So all, all this to say, I introduce you to these pastors in particular because you're giving. So on a Sunday by Sunday basis, as you give, part of your giving has gone to support these pastors being trained in the word and these pastors helping care for the poor in their communities. So we were working alongside ICM. Some of you are familiar with this, may have heard of this, International Care Ministry. So we partner with their... It's awesome. The whole premise of this ministry is that the best way to care for the poor, ultra poor, is through the church. So they've shown, they have reputable research to back this up that, that's been published in a variety of secular journals, confounded various scholars, because they've shown that churches that are proclaiming the gospel and teaching biblical values and then providing practical health and livelihood training, that they can bring about a massive change among the poor. So they've seen over a 100% increase in income in those who've gone through these programs through the church, and not just income, but a significant increase in physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual health. Basically, they've proven that the best distribution center for helping the poor by the design of God is the church. Amen. Now, in all of that, yeah, praise God for that. It's, we shouldn't be surprised. 
It's wonderful to see the world surprised by that, but we should not be surprised by that. But as we're, as we're talking, I, I was drawn to one particular facet of their research that stuck out in light of what we're diving into God's word today. So in their research, ICM found that the poor are usually oftentimes very disconnected from one another, so they lack a web of social relationships that's able to help when it comes to rising out of poverty. So, so basically what they've done is they've designed these poverty alleviation programs in the church to increase relational connectivity. So before the program starts, they survey the people in the, these communities and they ask questions like, who helps you in your daily life? Who could you go to in an emergency? Who could go, you could go to if you needed a loan for some money because you had a dire need? Do you know anybody who's praying for you? Who in the community is, is familiar with the specific needs in your family? And then they chart the results. So let me show you the graphics. When they chart the results at the beginning of the program, it looks like this picture that I'm going to show you on the left. So each one of those uh, circles represents different people. They're kind of disconnected from each other. Many people on the outside with one or maybe just a couple of connections. But then they go through this program in the church. They graph the same group and it ends up looking like this picture on the right. People now have this well-woven web of relationships where they know each other and they're praying for each other and they're actively interconnected with and helping each other. And when I saw that picture, I was obviously thankful for, for the effects of that there, but then I, I couldn't help but to think how much I desire for that to be the picture here. Like I, I knew what I was, I was preparing for this week to, to preach, and I just started thinking, okay, obviously circumstances are very different. We're not the ultra poor. Our circumstances are extremely different. But I want us to think about church for a minute. Like we're a mega church made up of thousands of people at different campuses. And I wonder if you were to chart our relationships with one another if it might look something like that picture on the left. Like some people in the middle who have strong relationships in the church, but many, many people on the fringes who don't really know others in the church, who don't know other people who are praying regularly for them by name. People who know what's going on in your life enough to care for you in your needs. People who are close enough to you to for you to be able to confess your sins and struggles to and know they're going to help you in that. So that kind of level. How many relationships in the church do you have like that? What I want to show you today is that that second picture is God's design for every one of our lives in the church. And not just a few at the core like all of us. I don't think it's a coincidence that the next trait of a biblical church that we plan to dive into today was biblical fellowship. So that's a word, fellowship, that describes the interconnectedness that God has designed for us to have in community with one another. So what I want to do today is I want to paint a picture of biblical fellowship, biblical community. And as I do, I want us to see that this picture goes in many ways against the grain of the large kind of megachurch mentality that we are a part of, that we're accustomed to, it is so easy for so many people to come into this room or other campuses today, sit in a seat, like participate in a service, and then walk away 
pretty disconnected from the people we've sat next to in worship. And many people actually prefer that kind of anonymity. Like, we like it. But what I want us to see today is that this is not God's design for your life. It's not God's design for the church. I want to show you today that there is a better way. I want to lead us to work hard in the days, months, years to come, Lord willing, to experience the kind of fellowship, the kind of community that God has created us for, to not be content with even a church culture that oftentimes is, is okay without this kind of community. So biblical fellowship, and I'm using that word because that's the word that the book of Acts uses to describe the early church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we've looked at this a few different times in the series. The early church devoted themselves, right after the church started, it says they devoted themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now we've talked about three of those other things. We've talked about the apostles' teaching, biblical teaching and preaching. We've talked about the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread there, and we've talked about prayer. So Fellowship is right up there with those others. And the Greek word for fellowship there in Acts 2.42 is koinonia. It's a great word in the original language of the New Testament that basically means commonness or commonality. It refers to community. They devoted themselves to community with one another. So I was trying to think of all the different places we could go to in the Bible that describe what biblical community looks like. I think the best summary of it is Romans chapter 12. So what I want to do is I want us to read this chapter. I want us to hear directly from God what he is saying to us as a church right now. And then just think through, okay, what does this mean for our lives? What does this mean for our families? What does this mean for us as a church, as a family of faith? So Romans chapter 12, this is God's word, how God's word speaks to us as a community. Verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give 
thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Oh, this chapter is packed. Now, here's the interesting thing. It's filled with commands. I don't know if you notice. Like all these things, do this, do this, be this, be that. So all kinds of commands, exhortations we're supposed to do. But what I want you to see from the start is how these commands don't just come out of nowhere. So the Bible, Romans 12, doesn't just say, worship God, love each other, be devoted to each other, honor each other, bless those who persecute you, just because, period. No, all of these commands in Romans 12 are motivated from the very beginning by the mercy of God in our lives. That first phrase, the first verse, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, sets the stage for everything that follows after that. And when he says that, he's referring. So by the mercies of God, he's just spent 11 chapters from Romans 1 to 11 giving us what I would say is one of the most, if not the most, beautiful, awe-inspiring picture of God's mercy anywhere in the Bible. Like, sum it up, like Romans 1 through 3, this picture of how God's wrath is upon sinners, that we all in our sin deserve the judgment of God. So for three chapters, he talks about that. Then you get to chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. It's one of the most beautiful paragraphs in all the Bible. And he starts talking about how we can be saved from the wrath, the judgment of God. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned, anybody know it, and fall short of the glory of God and are... No, no. Like, that's, that's like the bad news. And verse 24 is like the good news. Like... Memorize the good news. Man, I'm hoping that at other campuses you like just kept going at verse 24. And if so, then way to go because we are struggling here at Tyson's. Like, no, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the worst news in the world. The best news is, and are justified freely by his grace and the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Like, memorize that today. Like, memorize that today. Don't let that ever happen again. Like, we're justified freely by the grace of God. Justified. We're declared righteous before God by his grace. Not based on what we do. That's what chapter 4 and 5 are all about. We're justified through faith in God. I had so many conversations this last week in the Philippines and in Thailand with people who are like trying to earn their way to God. And I was like, good news. You can earn your way to God, but you don't have to. He's come to you. He's made salvation possible for you. Like, just trust in him. I'm sitting in a home there in this slum, and I'm just saying, oh, she's, this person's saying, I know I'll go to heaven because of all these things I've done. It's like, no. God loves you so much. He's not giving you a list of things to do. Oh, for non-Christian friends and family who are here today, like, please hear this. We have not gathered together as a church for worship to try to earn merits before God. Amen. That is not what we're doing. That's how so many religions in the world works, and that is the total opposite of the way that God works according to his word. We are gathered together for worship because we're overwhelmed by the mercy of God, not to earn merit before God. We're not trying to save ourselves. He's saved us from our sins, not based on anything we've done, but based on faith in Christ. 
and what Jesus has done for our sins. We invite you, we urge you to put your faith in Jesus. Be free from trying to earn your way to God. God has made a way to you in mercy. And that's what Romans 6 is all about. So we have died to sin and we're alive in Christ. Romans 7, he talks about his struggle with sin. It's like schizophrenic Paul. I don't understand what I do, what I want to do, I don't know what I do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I do it, but sin living in me that does it. It's like, ah, what? but we all recognize this because this is our lives. Like we struggle with sin. We're like, yeah. And then you get to Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Goes into one of those triumphant chapters in the Bible, concludes with neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons in the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate the Christian from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, not even death, can separate you from God's love when you're in Christ. Then, oh, you're clapping it. Eight, and then it gets better in nine and 10 and 11 because, well, it's actually debate-inducing chapters in the Bible, but, but it's all about God's grace, his free grace that he pours out on us. So after 11 chapters of that that I didn't do justice to in like two minutes, after 11 chapters, he says, now, in light of that, now all these, all these commands. So, so see the picture here. We, in the church, we are motivated, molded, by the mercy of God, it drives everything we do. And at least three ways here in Romans 12, so you might write these down. So think about this. One, as the church, we exalt the mercy of God in worship. That's what verses one and two are all about. And we could spend the rest of our time in those two verses. We're actually gonna go here pretty quickly. Verses one and two, take us back to the Old Testament where, where God's people would bring sacrifices and lay them on the altar before God. Now Romans is saying, you don't, you don't place an animal on the altar, it's, it's yourself. Your life, that's what it means to be a Christian. Your life, it's a living sacrifice. Your life is before God. Your mind, your will, Romans 12, two, everything about you. Surrender to God, and again, not because you have to, but because you want to, because you're motivated by the mercy of God. In light of his love for you, you lay your life down before him. Use me. Use my life however you want. This is worship. So we exalt the mercy of God in worship. And then, right after that, Romans 12 immediately starts talking about how we treat one another in the church. So see the connection here. We exalt God's mercy in worship. And then second, we express God's mercy in community. As we exalt him in worship, we, we, his mercy in worship, we express his mercy in community. So our vertical relationship with God has a direct effect on our horizontal relationships with one another. So you see in verse three, immediately Paul says, by the grace given to me, and he starts talking about how we relate to one another in the church based on the mercies of God. So make this connection. So in this room right now at other campuses, so all across our church, we've gathered together right now to exalt God's mercy in worship and to express God's mercy in community. Both. Exalting God's mercy in worship, expressing God's mercy and community. They go together and we can't disconnect the two. In other words, we can't gather together for worship and then have nothing to do with one another in community. That would make no sense. Which is why we cannot be content. So no Christian can be content with anonymously sitting in a worship service 
and then walking away without real, meaningful connection and community with the body of Christ. To use that, that picture from the research there in the Philippines, not one follower of Christ is designed to be on the fringe of community in the church. Not one. But what I'm concerned about is how in a large church like ours, that is what happens all the time. There's all kinds of people on the fringes. Some who've wanted to be there, some who don't want to be there. I've seen the surveys that have been taken in the past here that show how some people feel very connected here, but so many others don't. It's actually one of the main reasons people have given for why they have left our church, because of a lack of community. And I long for that not to be the case. Not I. God longs for that not to be the case in his church. So we need to think through how do we express God's mercy to one another in community and then encourage each other to work toward this, which involves us. We're going to see every one of us. So starting in verse 3, the rest of Romans 12 contains about 25 different commands and exhortations for a biblical community based on the mercy of God. And whenever we see these, these commands, they're specifically applying, uh, I'll make mention of a couple that are not, but most of them are specifically applying to relationships within the church. So this chapter isn't just saying, do this with all people. This chapter is saying, do these things together with one another in the church. When we see one another's in the Bible, it's referring to Christian community in the church. So I want to show, so there's 25 commands. I thought, ah, oh, that's probably too many points. So we're going to take that down to 10 which some of you might still think that's too much, but we'll, we'll go through these pretty quickly. I want to I show you 10 one another's that characterize biblical community, biblical fellowship. We'll hit them quickly, but, but what does biblical fellowship look like? What does it mean to experience biblical community? And the Bible says, well, first, it means we belong to one another. We belong to one another. This is the language in verses three through five. By the grace given to me, I say to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Sober judgment. Verse four, as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. Listen to this phrase. Individually, we are members one of another. Right? We belong to each other. Like the parts of a body belong together are connected together. So in Christ, we are connected to one another. And that, that sounds simple, but that is key to remember. Christ is the one who connects us together. We are not connected together by our ethnicity. We represent all sorts of ethnicities. We're not connected together by our socioeconomic status. We are not connected together by our politics. We're not connected together by our preferences, which is why we always have to be careful not to look to any of those things to connect us. In fact, this is why in the church, we really need to be around, regularly around, people of different ethnicities and different socioeconomic levels and different political persuasions and different preferences. So this is where I would encourage you, think about the people, if you are, Connected to the church are the people around you, people who look like you, think like you. When it comes to these, these sorts of things, same socioeconomic level of you, same political persuasion as you, if so, then 
Be cautioned. You may be looking to those things to connect you. We're actually designed to be in the kind of community in church where we're around people. There's all kinds of difference. And we look at each other and we think, the only thing I have in common with this person is Christ. And that is enough. This is, this is distinct community. It's in Christ. We belong to one another. Like, like, like a body, like a family. I think about, I think about coming home uh, after close to two weeks away, uh, late Thursday night, and seeing Heather and my kids and them jumping out of the car at the airport to give me a hug and just thinking, oh, I love my family. And realize when we come to the Bible, like brothers and sisters, like this is how God has designed his church to be, but I fear we often miss this. I, I fear that far too few people think of church as, as family when that's how God's designed us to be. Actually, God's designed us to be deeper than physical family. And some of you are nodding your heads, I'm guessing because, like some people I've met in, South, met in Southeast Asia the last couple of weeks, you may have been adversely affected in your physical family by coming to faith in Christ. There's all sorts of people who've been kicked out of their family because they came to faith in Christ. This is deeper even than physical family. Now, like any physical family, church family can be challenging. So my younger brother's about to get married. Our whole family, so siblings, grandkids, aunts, uncles, cousins, we were together just a few weeks ago. It was total craziness. I don't know how your extended family gatherings are, but uh, does, do the dynamics and the drama ever, uh, I mean, you're all, y'all are like all nodding your heads. I can see you nodding your heads at other campuses right now, like dynamics, drama, unpredictable, uh, or maybe predictable in not so helpful ways. So, so I, and we're sitting around and in all the craziness, I'm looking over at my brother's fiance in that gathering and I'm just wondering, what, what is she thinking? <laughs> As she realizes that in getting my brother, she's getting us too. I, <laughs> and this is kind of like the church. Like when you get Christ, guess what? You get us. <laughs> You get us, you get, you get the church, a community that's marked by, I mean, some uh, drama sometimes, and we'll just, yeah, we've got our own craziness and unpredictable dynamics, but that's kind of the point, that we belong to one another in Christ, and so keep going, we're gifted for one another, for each other. Romans 12 continues in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, and he starts listing different gifts, oh. I love this, God. Paul says, God has gifted every one of us in the church with, with gifts by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the church. Every person in this church, so think from the eight-year-old to the 78-year-old and everywhere in between. Every person who's put their faith in Christ. You have spiritual gifts, God-given, spirit-empowered gifts for the building up of the church. Now, our gifts are different. We have different functions. That's the whole point here. We play different parts. But the beauty of what Paul's saying here is everybody counts. Like, take this image of a body. Every body part is interdependent and necessary for the body's health. Like, every part. 
So brothers and sisters in Christ, this means that God has created you like right where you're sitting right now with gifts that are of immense value to the church. There's another reason why we we can't be content with being on the fringes. That's not, it's not how we're intended to be. We're supposed to be using the gifts in the body. And Paul lists seven gifts here, prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, and showing mercy. But then you get to 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter 4. You see other lists of gifts. So the purpose here is not to give an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts, say, okay, which one of these do I have? The point is to say, every one of you is gifted by the grace of Christ. So use your gifts to build up one another. What happens then when all the church, like all, each of us, we realize all across this room, like, and we don't get this picture like, okay, we've all kind of gathered together, we sit in seats and we watch one person up here use their gifts. We realize every single one of us has gifts. Every single member in this body, you have gifts for the building up of this body, for the advance of Christ's mission in the world, I just think we're prone to miss this. I think we're prone to think, yeah, others are gifted. I don't know about me. When that is not true. And we can so easily just become content with, all right, some people using their gifts and then everybody else is kind of here. Like, no. Like, I, wanna, I want you to watch a, a video with me. And I, I pulled it out. It's an old video. Uh, it's pretty grainy. It's not high quality. So just kind of get over the lack of that. Uh, but I think it'll make the point here. So it's from the, uh, it's describing the Apollo 11 uh, uh, mission to the moon. So watch this with me and then I want to share something with you. Three men to represent the culmination of a dream and the beginning of a new concept of reality. seconds away from the Apollo 11 liftoff. All the second stage tanks now pressurized. 35 seconds and counting. We are still go Apollo 11. 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Here's why. <laughs> Praise God, we've been to the moon. So here's why I share that video. 
Uh, so this, this moment, we remember in our history, like Neil Armstrong, sitting foot on the moon, making the statement. Did you know that on that Apollo 11 spacecraft, there were over one million parts on that spacecraft? So you put this together. That meant even if they had an astounding 99.99% reliability, that means over 100 parts would fail on the way to the moon. Like every single part mattered. Not just like one man, like thousands of people and individual parts everywhere. And it happened, like they all came together, it worked. And the quote at the end was from a renowned secular anthropologist who'd studied peoples and, who'd studied peoples and tribes around the world. She said, never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. I think she was right, but I don't think she came up with that. Like this is the picture of a small group of fledgling disciples who were gathering together the risk of their lives in the first century in Acts to they had a mission and they knew like everybody mattered. And 2,000 years later, the same thing is true in this church. Like McLean Bible Church, if we're content, if we're satisfied with... 50% 50% participation in the Great Commission, like 75%, oh, how great would that be? 80%, like, we will miss what God has created us for. Like, we have greater than an Apollo-sized goal here. We want to make disciples and multiply churches among all nations, beginning right here in greater Washington, D.C., and we cannot accomplish that goal if many of our parts are, like, on the fringes. Just think about what happens when every part, supernaturally gifted by God, every member of McLean Bible Church is meaningfully engaged in this mission with the talents, gifts, abilities we've all been given. We have no idea what God will do in and through us if we will refuse to settle for less than that. And we are gifted for each other. This is a glorious thought that we don't want to miss out on. It's what it means to be the church. We belong to one another. We're gifted to one another. I've got to speed up. Third, we love one another. We love one another. Verse nine, love must be sincere. Like, this is not fake, superficial, surface love. This is deep, authentic, real, powerful, commitment kind of love. The word Paul uses for love there is agape, which is extremely, was extremely unusual in pagan Greek literature. It wasn't a common term. It referred to unself love, selfless love. It was ridiculed by many in Greek culture as a sign of weakness to love like that. But that's the word Jesus in the New Testament church chose to describe how we love others. We don't love based on what we can, we don't love other people based on what we can get from them. We love one another selflessly, sincerely, to the point of hating evil on behalf of one another, which we'll talk about more next week and what will be a particularly challenging, politically incorrect topic. So that's just a teaser for next week. Uh, next, we care for one another. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. It's a great phrase there. The word there in the Greek, you would recognize Philadelphia. It's a combination of phileo, love, Adelphos, brother, brotherly love. So again, this picture of family affection. But take this to a deeper level. When you think about your family, think about the responsibility you assume for their care. I think about my wife and my kids. I... I have assumed responsibility for their care. In a similar way, even, even for my mom, or in some senses, my siblings. So when we picture family, we all often picture this responsibility to care for 
the family around us. So now take that and put it to the church. And as I was thinking about this, I, I thought about the way this reality is being reflected right now. Even knowing that as I'd be preaching this, as we're sitting in here right now, under the teaching of God's word, there are people in this church who are caring for kids, who are teaching kids the Bible like they're their own kids. That's a powerful picture, isn't it? Many, many of you have children with disabilities. And during this hour and a half, a team of people is caring for your children like they're their own, like loving them, serving them, caring for them. I think about all the men and women and students who week by week take responsibility to care for people in this church like family. And I want to just encourage you. Those of you who've already done that today and now you've come into this worship gathering, I want to encourage you. That is the right mentality with which to approach church. To constantly think, how can I help care for people in the church like they're my own family? Because the opposite is is not good. And unfortunately, the opposite is a common approach to church in our culture. Like the opposite is when people come, drive up onto a church campus thinking, okay, I want church my way today. As I drive up, the grounds better look good. The parking better be convenient. The building better be accessible. The childcare better be seamless. The people better be friendly. The music better fit my taste. The sermon better keep my attention. And I better drive away in a timely fashion with the whole experience meeting my needs or else I will look elsewhere. Now, I want to be careful. Like in presenting that picture. Because well, here's the deal. We all have needs when we come together. We all want those needs met. But here's where the problem comes. Follow this. The problem comes when we think that the way to meet our needs is by centering around ourselves. When the Bible actually gives us a totally different picture, God has actually designed our needs to be met as we center our lives on others. That is a different way to think. In the rest of the world, that's a different way to approach community. Everywhere else in the world, we're inclined to say, okay, community is focused on what you can get. In the church, community is designed to be focused on what you can give. So let me just ask the question, obviously not to be answered aloud, but how many of you walked into either this building, whatever campus you're at right now, and the primary thought in your mind when you came in today was, how can I glorify God by caring for other people today? Who who can I pray for? Who can I encourage and just edify, build up? How can I help somebody else in what they're going through? Like, that's what I'm looking for today. And I, I know some of you came with that perspective. And if that's you, I want you to be encouraged in God's word. If, if you didn't, then I want you to be corrected by God's word. Contrary to everything the world says and even what oftentimes we communicate in the church and are trying to appeal to everybody's preferences contrary to what the world and often even church world says, you're not the center of this picture like God is. And that's good news because God has created you to find fulfillment in selfless, not selfish, but selfless community in the church that is unlike any other kind of community in the world, a kind of community that will totally change your life. Think about it. What person doesn't want to gather together with a group of people who are totally focused on loving and caring for each other? How attractive is that? 
One of, my, one of my favorite apologists from the early church. Now, apologist is not somebody who says, I'm sorry a lot. Apologist is somebody who defends the faith. So early centuries of Christianity, when there's a lot of persecution there and Christianity was new, there was a lot of defenders of the faith in the second, third century. So Aristides is an apologist. And when oftentimes we think about defending the faith, we think of like intellectual arguments for the resurrection of Christ or uh, just, yeah, logical this or that. But this apology that I want to read from is a defense that is saying, you, you want to see the truth of Christianity? Look at this people called the church and the way they live, and the way they interact with each other. So listen to this letter to a king. Aristides said, now the Christians, O king, by going about and seeking, have found the truth, for they know and trust in God who has no fellow. They refuse to worship strange gods, and they go all their way in humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored. They rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. He who has gives to him who has not, ungrudgingly and without boasting. When the Christians find a stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as a true brother. They do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone, but those who are brethren after the Spirit and in God. When one of their poor passes away from the world, each provides for his burial according to his ability. If they're here, any of their number who are imprisoned or oppressed for the name of the Messiah, they all provide for his needs. And if it's possible to redeem him, they set him free. If they find poverty in their midst and they do not have spare food, they fast two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with the necessities. They observe scrupulously the commandments of their Messiah, living honestly and soberly as the Lord their God ordered them. Every morning and every hour they praise and thank God for his goodness to them and for their food and drink they offer thanksgiving. Such, O king, is the commandment given to the Christians and such is their conduct. Ha! Huh. May this be our conduct. Like somebody's hungry in their midst. He says, these people fast. They don't eat for a few days so that this person can eat. Like that's not come to a worship service, go away. Like that's, that's real authentic community that God has designed for the church. So we care for one another like this. Keep going. We honor one another. Romans 12.10 says we outdo one another in showing honor. We work hard to honor one another, to build one another up, never to tear one another down. Ephesians 4.29-32 just warns against gossip, which is a community killer in the church. Like it is sinful to speak about a brother or sister to their face or behind their back in a way that does not build up the character of Christ in them, have nothing to do with it. Ephesians 4 says it grieves the spirit of God, quenches his movement in the church. I guard against it, guard our tongues. Look for opportunities to outdo one another in showing honor for one another. We honor one another, we motivate one another, this is Romans 12, 11, and 12. This picture of spiritual fervor and zeal for Christ, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer. All of those are one another's we see in Scripture. We pray for one another. We encourage one another. We consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. In Hebrews chapter 10. Have you ever been around somebody else that you think, I'm just a, a better person for being around that person? That's the kind of relationship we want in the church. I made this be the commentary on your life and your relationship. Like live so that people grow closer to Christ by being around you. Oh, what a glorious picture of community. We motivate one another. We share one with one another. Specifically our resources, the word contribute in verse 13. This is really good. 
The word that's translated contribute there is from the root word koinonia, which is that word for fellowship. But 12 different times in the New Testament, it's used to refer specifically to giving resources, sharing resources for the building up of community. So this is what we have from the very beginning, Acts chapter 2, when they were selling lands and uh, houses and possessions and bringing those, need, those resources together and sharing with everybody as they had need. From the very beginning of the Bible, we're intended to share our resources together in selfless, sacrificial generosity. I saw this powerfully portrayed in the Philippines this last week. So these ultra poor people, I mean, they're struggling every day for basic needs. And yet they have a savings program that they've started where they put aside a little bit of money every week. And they're all doing it there in this program in the church. And as a result, whenever somebody faces unexpected, pretty dire need, then the whole community is able to help. What a picture. And how much more should that be the case among us, in a sense, in all of our affluence? Like, we're not going to go into biblical giving all over again because we talked about that as a trait of a church. But this is why we take up an offering unapologetically every week in the church. Because being Christian community involves contributing to one another in a way that provides for one another and the community we're able to experience together and then helps us together accomplish mission in the world. It is a good and right and biblical thing to share our resources as the church. And again, what happens when every part is doing that instead of just a few at the core? The possibilities for displaying the glory of Christ in the world through sharing with one another. That includes, into verse 13, hospitality. Bring people into your home. Keep going. We share with one another. We rejoice with one another. Romans 12, 15. We don't envy other successes. We rejoice with them. Unlike so much community in the world, we're not in competition with each other. We are in celebration with each other. In all kinds of ways. We rejoice with one another. We weep with one another. So who are the people in the church who you know will rejoice with you in your highs? And who are the people in the church who you know will weep with you in your lows? I'm guessing that for some, hopefully many, there are specific names that come to your mind. I'm also guessing that for some, maybe many, there are are not specific names in this church that come to your mind. And I want us to work to change that. And I would even ask it the other way, like who in the church would come to you with something to rejoice over? And who in the church would come to you with a struggle and know that you would weep with them? Like be that kind of person that's pursuing others in the church in such a way that these commands to rejoice and weep will play out in and through your life. Finally, 10th, one another, we bear with one another. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Now, I phrase this, bear with one another, because living in harmony with one another is sometimes easier said than done, right? Like harmony with one another necessitates humility before one another, which is why the very next words from God here are, do not be haughty, associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. So here's the reality. In the church, uh, in this church specifically, we are a community full of sinful men and women. It won't always be this way. When we get to heaven, our community will be perfect. I can't wait for that. Amen? Amen. We want that. But for now, it's not that. So for now, sometimes we say things we shouldn't say. Or we wish we wouldn't have said. Or we 
do things we, we wish we would have done in our community with one another. Like I was thinking about this. As I was preparing, I was thinking, I say so many things in this church. Don't amen that too loud. I, I talk a lot. Like there's so many opportunities for my words. Like I need people to bear with me. We need one another to. I, none of us is perfect. And yet we can, we can get so wounded so quickly and then grudges and bitterness. Like this is not God's design. We, we bear with one another. And, and this is where, so if we're going to live in harmony together, we'll have to bear with one another some. And it's another reason why we have to be very careful, particularly in the church, not to surround ourselves with people who are just naturally like us or we naturally like. Because if, if we're not around people that we're having to bear with, then maybe we're missing out on what God has designed for us in community. This is why Romans 12 says, associate with the lowly, like go out of your comfort zone where you will learn to live in harmony with people who are unlike you and learn to bear with one another and experience the kind of unity that's only found in Christ. So there it is, a tenfold summation of all the commands we see in Romans 12 for the church. We are totally out of time, uh, so we can't dive in depth in the last part here, but I'll just put it out there. We'll dive into it, Lord willing, one day. So we exalt the mercy of God in worship. We express the mercy of God in community, and then we extend the mercy of God on mission. And basically, the, the other commands here that we didn't look at are focused on how we relate to the world around us. And outside the church, we want to be a reflection of the mercy of God on mission in the world. So, so that's just it. So we, we won't go into the depths of the end of Romans 12 here, but I want you to think with me how this picture in Romans 12 is powerful in the world around us. That the church is not supposed to be a picture of people who just come into a building once a week, go through some religious motions together, and then return to our lives. Like, who wants to be a part of that? I was, I was talking on a very long plane ride this week with a woman who uh, basically said she got tired of organized religion because that's all it had become. It was just like people gathering together for religious routine and then kind of walking away and their lives really didn't look that different. Their relationships with each other really weren't affected. Like she said, I just didn't get it. It wasn't worth it. And I said, I, I don't think that's worth it either. And I said, you got to hear what I'm preaching on this Sunday. And I just <laughs> went through the whole sermon with her. It was uh, like the whole deal. Like we had time. So she got the whole deal. But I, I, just, I was just saying to her, like, yes, that was not God's design for your life. Like, God's designed something so much better. So let's be what God has designed. Ah, oh, I'll, I'll leave you with this concluding statement. When we love one another as family in the church, we will glorify God as our Father in the world. When we love one another as family in the church, maybe a shorter way to put that, the gladness of the family reflects the glory of the Father. When a family is glad in relation to one another, that is a reflection on the Father. When a family is disconnected, then th that, that's a reflection on the Father. And that's not a picture we want to give. Like, we don't want to give the world a picture of just individual followers totally isolated from each other in their lives. Like, that's in some ways easier. Like, come in, participate in the service, walk out, don't deal with all the hard to love people in the church like you and me. <laughs> it's a lot easier to live in isolation. It's a lot harder to take time to be with people who are different from you 
to carry their burdens, serve them and work together with them to reach those without Christ. But this is where we see the glory of God on display in a people who are committed to that kind of community that's totally different than any other kind of community in the world. And that is what God has invited us to be a part of. So let's not miss it. Let's not miss it. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father in heaven, we come to you right now. We bow our heads before you, having heard your word as your sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters in this church. And we pray, help us to be the kind of community you've created us to be. Make us, we pray. Make McLean Bible Church more and more and more a kind of community that reflects connectedness in Christ and love for one another and care for one another and honoring one another and weeping with one another and rejoicing with one another. God, please make us a people marked by biblical fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to watch this full sermon or hundreds of other sermons, interviews, articles, and podcasts, that's all available free to you at Radical.net. And don't forget to grab your free download of David Platt's latest 97-page resource, Mission Precision, Defining Truths Every Disciple Needs to Know. You can get it free by visiting Radical.net forward slash Mission Precision. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and until next time, join us there at Radical.net.